What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E-Floor Explicit Podcast. Today is a very, very, very special episode. If any episode that I want you to watch and listen to, it's this one. Today, you're going to watch me talk to and interview Brandon Embry's mom, who was killed in 2019. He's a Navy vet. He's a very intelligent human being, multiple degrees, chemical engineer, Very, very smart guy. And the circumstances around his death are tremendously suspicious, to say the least. From the botch investigation that the Asheboro Police Department did or didn't do in North Carolina, to two female suspects that initially the cops were investigating his death as a homicide and these people were were persons of interest. The worst part about it is his death wasn't ruled as a homicide or suspicious. They say that he died from hypothermia and pneumonia, which if you see the crime scene photos and the photos that his mother sent me, you can look at him and that's not what happened. So I interview her, I talk about it, she spreads the word on it. And you know, if you guys can please like this video, share this video, share it to as many people as possible, follow my TikTok, follow her TikTok, follow all of our accounts, because I'm gonna be posting it like crazy for the next couple days. This case is absolutely insane and justice needs to be served in some way, shape or form. So please like this video, subscribe to the channel and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time I post new content, which is every Friday. Enjoy this episode of the E-Force of podcast in the mysterious murder of Brandon Embry. See you next time. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explicit Podcast. And today, we have a very special guest, um, a different type of uh, episode that we that we normally do, um, but I think a very important one and something that needs uh, a lot of attention that it's not getting. Hopefully, that will uh, happen in the near future, and 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 you know, justice will kind of cliching say be served um this is sarah lee brandon Embry's mother and there's a hose outside that's going crazy right now like there's there's um anyway it's it's uh, can you hear that can you hear that hiss no okay Mm -hmm. good all right i can um anyway so this is sarah lee justin or um not justin uh brandon's mom and we're going to talk about what happened to your son First of all, can you introduce yourself and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast and talking with me. Um, I live here in North Carolina and that's where my son was living. He had moved here from uh, the Seattle area, was actually in Burien and he moved here in 2018. Uh, We had been here a few years before and he has a sister that lives here and then a brother that's still in Washington state. All right. So you guys are originally from North Carolina, no? No, no. We're um, just kind of from all over, I guess. Uh, We've moved a lot, a lot of military, um, a lot of military moves. And uh, we just kind of ended up here with uh, my husband's work and, we just thought it would be a good change for Brandon, um, better cost of living, mm-hmm. and there's lots of schools, so we thought he could finish college out here. Right, and okay, so the, the just so everyone's listening and watching, the reason why you are on and who who we're talking about here is Brandon, who, your son, is he he died in 2019. 
I'm just, I'm saying died because you know there's other circumstances that go with that. Um, but he died under very like tremendously suspicious um, way, basically um, from everything I've seen, I've heard, and I've read just today. I'm in like all actually in shock of of the lack of of everything that didn't happen in this in this case and you know honestly if it wasn't for your efforts with your Facebook group with you promoting it and you talking about it this definitely we would not be talking about this right now from from what I can guess can you kind of tell me uh you know first of all who Brandon was uh, I know he was a he was a Navy vet, he, very highly intelligent man, um, very educated. So, you know this, and, and I'll let you talk about him in a second. But when you hear this about Brandon, and then you understand what happened to him, that's the first thing I thought of. I'm like, this doesn't match. This person doesn't match what happened to him. So, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Brandon. Okay. Uh, Brandon was, um, he was 33 when he died. He had been, he had been in different programs for college. He did a community college for welding. He felt he was taught by his dad that it's good to have a trade to back up an education. Uh, but then he was going to college. He was interested in the chemical engineering. He was actually in the chemical engineering program. And from there, he thought about pharmacology or um, being a chemical engineer. So he, it just was very expensive in the Seattle area, which anyone can tell you it's very expensive out there. And he had had a breakup with a girlfriend and we just thought it be a really good change for him to come to North Carolina. And uh, Brandon was just always a very smart guy. I mean, just from the time he was little, um, all of his life, he liked learning. He had certificates in just all kinds of different things. He was actually taking the, um, was that the NASM training where you can be a personal trainer. He was doing that on the side. Um, he just had lots of interest. He was a great person to talk to, great conversationalist. I loved having conversations with Brandon. Uh, he was a great listener, but then he would al always have something very like intelligent to add to the conversation and things. So, um, you know, I just miss that, especially just being able to have a chat with him okay. and he he was helpful to me um he's great with animals he would dog sit for me and I actually like my plan was I kind of wanted to get him in with having a dog of his own and training and things like that with dogs because I could just see the love that he had with animals right. and they were always really drawn to him too so he was a great guy. A lot of people would just say that he was, he was gentle. He was kind, the kind that, you know, give you the shirt off his back if you needed it. Mm -hmm. um, just a good friend to have and a really good guy. Right. That's, it's basically in a nutshell, everything that I, like I said, I've, I've read today, heard is, is that's the synopsis of Brandon. And, and like, I, like you said, very intelligent. Um, he, he, he's also in the Navy. He joined when he was 18. Yes. Yes, he was a submariner. He was on a nuclear submarine. 
and uh, he was stationed at Pearl Harbor on the USS Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well-traveled, well-educated, just well-rounded, just good human being, right? So yes. now let's talk a little bit about like the, the moments leading up to, because if I followed what I read and heard about today correctly is you did almost like a welfare check on him. And then you mm-hmm. went to the apartment that he was staying at. And then that's when things started to unravel. So can you kind of like walk me back to from the, the weird texts, texts that you were getting from Brandon's phone and, and, yes. and walk me into the, the moment that you, that you, you and your daughter came across his apartment. Okay. Uh, so Brandon returned, he had been traveling for work and I picked him up from the airport. That was on Thursday, the 6th. No, I'm sorry, Thursday the 5th. He went to work on the 7th, which he was actually let go from that job. So that kind of added to the confusion and the circumstances with him being let go is very strange too. And I have a feeling that it tied into um, health issues that weren't, that were um, health, maybe health issues from what was being, being done to him. So um, Friday, he went to work, he had been let go, he comes back. And I said, Well, you know, can you watch the dogs for me? Because um, I had to drive all the way to Kentucky to pick up my daughter. So he watched the dogs, then that was uh, Friday and Saturday, Saturday was his birthday, I talked to him on the phone on Saturday. So that was the last time I actually heard his voice was on his birthday. And I wanted to celebrate his birthday with him. So I was calling and texting. um, And he did send some texts that I thought were kind of strange. I didn't, you know, I just didn't really put them like under the microscope or anything. I just thought, well, that's kind of odd. But um, what I knew about Brandon is that if there was some kind of um, problem or uh, he had feelings, he was very articulate. So he would send paragraphs and he would really kind of bare his soul to me. You know, uh, he was, he, he could express himself very well. And these texts were really short, um, not his style of writing. And even some of the words later, we discover that some of the words didn't fit. And I remember sitting in the living room and I read the text out loud to my husband and he just, he made this face and, and then I looked and I read it again. And I was like, you're right. Brandon didn't write these. And from there, I think I've been able to kind of go back and start establishing a timeline to where the text didn't make sense and other things was that I was calling and I never actually got a call back from him only these strange texts and at one point he had shared his location with me and I remember trying to find his location to find out well maybe he was out somewhere um, but it would just spin around it would never give me a location for him on his phone so after days of not hearing from him um I just felt like something was wrong and that was Wednesday I've had a really bad feeling as a mom 
you don't like those feelings. So you try to rationalize them and make them go away. But I still, I called my daughter and I said, first thing tomorrow, we need to go check on Brandon or I need to go check on him. And she wanted to go with me. And so then that would be Thursday. Now, now it's the 12th. We go to his apartment and I'm pounding on the door. I'm knocking on the door, uh, banging on the windows. There's no response. And I'm thinking, okay, Brennan's going to come to the door. He was just going to been up late playing video games. He loved video games. So I'm kind of thinking he's going to come to the door and be like, well, what do you want? Why are you banging on my door? Um, but he never did come to the door. So then I go around the back and I'm banging on the door and I noticed the window was broke. Um, but I'm starting to realize like, okay, his vehicle's here and he's not answering. So something is really not right. And so I wasn't too focused on the window. It was more focused on why is he not responding? And the neighbor took the screen off the window and I was, you know, where the window was broke. I thought, well, without the double pane glass that maybe he could hear me easier. And I was just trying to yell his name through there and he didn't come. So now I'm calling um, the police, 911. They come, they can't answer the door. They tell me that um, they have to get, the property manager has to bring the key. So I call them, she opens the door and we never go in. Um, we can hear them working. We didn't know exactly where they were inside. Um, later, they pull me to the side. So I don't even really get to be near Brandon. And, um, you know, he's, he's just like up to here with a sheet. He has the oxygen on. I can only like see him far away. Um, but I just see like, you know, the blood and stuff on him. Um, they take him to the hospital. My daughter and I follow behind. And one of the things that was so just out of place was that when I saw Brandon intubated in the emergency room, that I was flashing back to seven months prior where he had been intubated. And so at this point, the emergency doctor is telling me that it doesn't look good and they don't think he's going to make it. But like in the back of my mind, I was thinking, but this looks so familiar and he made it before he was just intubated um, seven months ago. So maybe he, he'll pull through, which is just a very strange story and it ends up tying in. But at the time I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So, so let's continue. Sorry. Okay, so then they have to transport him to a higher level of care. So he's taken to Greensboro, Moses Cone, um, thinking, uh, see, I think it was like a, about 29 hours from the time that he was found until the time he died. So he was found Thursday um, around 3.30 p.m., um, taken to the emergency room, transferred, and died the next day that night and it was really hard like having to call family and um, do this over the phone 
and tell his brother that he had to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I kind of thought that even on life support that he had a little more time. Right. And it just, it, it really happened so fast, but I'm grateful that he held on that long. And I think he was a true, he was a true warrior in that sense that, you know, he was strong enough because counting back, I think that he was unconscious by Monday and he wasn't found till Thursday and he died on Friday. Wait. So uh... he really held on a long time and he suffered tremendously. He really did with, you know, if you see all of the things that were wrong with him medically, um, he, he really suffered and the, the most horrible thing is that I believe this person or persons were going back into his apartment while he laid there suffering to clean blood and clean up the crime scene and just walk over his body while he laid there. Right. That's okay. So, so that's my, that was my question all day is how long, I don't even know if they have, if you have an answer to this, but um, how long you just said four days almost, but it, did they not know that he was in that, like, you know, cause they can do calls at death or a time of death and they can kind of backtrack it and stuff like that. But that, that was my question all day. I'm like, how long was he sitting in his, in a pool of, of blood from his head and the water overflowing and, and all that stuff. So just to break it down for everyone, Brandon was found in his apartment the the bathtub was flooding over there was water everywhere correct mm-hmm. um yes. he, he he had blood leaking from his head laying on the ground you look at the 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 crime scene photos are you look at it and you're like up either a person went completely ape shit and destroyed the entire apartment or there was a tremendous fight um and someone you know the people people were fighting and 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 there's blood everywhere there's um the the seat the the thing you can take off the back of a, a toilet that heavy piece um was, a, was split in half part of it was leaning up against the side of a the a wall and then the other half was i think in the living room correct the bedroom or the, the bedroom, other half was right. in the bedroom Yes. Which, you know, it, me personally, I've been obsessed with serial killers and murder, like all, all kinds of stuff my whole life, N- not in a mm-hmm. weird way, in the very just what goes through their minds. To me, it was two things how it looked. It was either a, a like I said earlier, tremendous fight or something happened to him. That's where he laid. And this was made to look like a mm-hmm. break in or a situation happened in here. Um, but it, it, what sucks is like everything is stacked up against you because not only do you have no answers to any of this stuff, but the police themselves did a horrendous job. The Ashboro police department did a terrible job on the investigation. I mean, one of the first thing they said to you was he was high on meth and he just went crazy. Right. Yes. Which later on you find out that in the toxicology report, we'll get to not the case. So they didn't bag up proper evidence. Um, I mean, I will say like the water overflowing could have possibly got rid of a lot of, you know, forensics and 
and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But at the same time, a lot of the stuff that you're doing as a mom is like standard stuff that crime scene investigators should be doing. So can you kind of like explain to me, you know, you guys get to the hospital, he, he passes away the next day after they, they didn't even, I heard that they didn't even tell you that they moved him to the IC unit in another no, hospital. I was, no, I was there at the IC unit. Okay. Um, I yes, was present there when he died. And no, but did you um, know that they transported him? Yes, I oh, did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. I did. Uh, they were going to life flight him, but for some reason they didn't. I don't know mm. if it was um, occupied or something like that, uh, but they ended up uh, transporting him with the ambulance. Mm-hmm. Um, so then after he died, I, you know, you're just in such despair. You're not thinking about no. getting justice. It, It's so far away from your mind, but then as the grief um, it, which never really goes away, but it, the grief just clouds your, your thinking. And then as that kind of, um, as time helps that, then you just start to think a little more clearly. And I started seeing a lot of things just didn't seem to be adding up. And so we had went over to the apartment to start gathering up his things and, as I said, when my daughter and I went over, we were outside his apartment, so we never went in. And then my husband and his brother had went in and they started clearing things up. So a lot of what happened, I wasn't able to see until much later after they closed the case and the crime scene photos become available. But we go in the apartment and I did go in the bathroom and that is, which I saw the blood, Um, which in and of itself was a lot. And I was definitely thinking what happened here. But then once I went in the bathroom, I thought, no, something, something very, very bad happened. And the, the shower curtain was gone. Uh, That was something that I really wanted to see because of all the destruction in the bathroom. I wanted to see if there was some kind of blood pattern on the shower curtain. I never got to see that. Um, there was blood on the walls. It looks like there's footprints, bloody footprints on the wall. And um, later this person that comes into contact with the family will talk about the bathroom. Um, But the bathroom was just destroyed. The toilet was actually up off of the ground, bringing a tile with it. And those tiles those tiles are, you know, they're from years ago. And to me, you know, it takes like, I'll say like, you know, like nuclear destruction or something to get those tiles off the floor. Those, the old, the old style, the very thin tiles. And that was up off of the ground with the commode, everything broken, all the walls bloody. And I see this spray in the wall. So like you see the, the blood print, but there's spray running through it. And as somebody was in here, cleaning someone was cleaning this up so I said we need to call the detectives back over and there was the male detective who was the lead detective and the female detective who was his partner Mm -hmm. and she is the one that said he was on meth and that that's what people on meth do would be to spray and clean their own blood off the walls and I'm just 
you know, I know I was just looking at her like she was crazy. And I looked at my husband and I was like, what in the world? And I said, well, you know, I told her, I said, Brandon wasn't on drugs. He wasn't doing meth. I had been spending time with him. I had been at his apartment helping him pack. So if you see the crime scene photos, you'll see a lot of boxes we had Mm -hmm. been packing. And most of the boxes were staged in the living room and in the guest room. And the guest room, all the boxes were kind of dress right dress, stacked up. Um, you know, I even told them to buy boxes. So they're all kind of the same size and easy to stack. And so I knew the condition of the apartment. And I've told people, like, Brandon was messy. He was, you know, a great guy, but he was messy. And I had told them, the police, they ask about the condition of the apartment, which I had not seen um, once the the incident happened. I only saw before and I said, well, he's messy. Um, But then when I see the crime scene photos, I was like, no, this isn't messy. This is obliterated. This is just (laughs) ransacked. It's, you know, just stuff everywhere, just dumped out all the boxes that we packed were dumped out. Uh, So it was just a very different um, scene from Mm -hmm. what I had seen in his apartment. And I don't get to see all of this until about nine, nine or 10 months later when I get the crime scene photos. Months? Months, yes, because the police went in first and they were, um, moving things and cleaning things and putting things in boxes. Then my husband and brother went in and they were moving things. So I didn't know that his apartment had been ransacked until later with the crime scene. Photos. What? How, how is that even possible? How, how does the police not tell you that I know? And, and at the end of the day, they basically listed this as a the cause of death, natural pneumonia and like hypertension or whatever it was, um, mm-hmm. which could very well be true if you were sitting in cold water and you were getting pneumonia for four days. Definitely. Yes, he had hypothermia. Hypothermia. And in, yes, he had hypothermia, a very serious condition, and it is in the medical notes. And one of one of the things about that I said that, you know, Brandon was a warrior and he hung on, that those medical records are very valuable. I can't imagine if he had died and just went for an autopsy it would have really been a they would be able to much easier sweep this under the rug Mm -hmm. so those medical records have really helped a lot and uh so there was hypothermia um just you know it's it's like the entire case has been this kind of going backwards and putting pieces together. And I've also told my friends, it's like you get a piece of the puzzle, but then the puzzle gets bigger. Right. So it's been, it's been kind of crazy like that. But I just felt something was really off about with this detective. And like I said, I told her, I said, well, he wasn't doing meth. He drug tested for work. He had changed jobs a few times mm-hmm. and each job did, um, did the drug testing and I've talked to a few of the employers they've confirmed yes he definitely had to have the drug test before working and he didn't have any of the signs of drug use so is this before toxicology came out or is this after that you had this conversation uh, with her this was before okay you know I told her but they had they had done toxicology in the hospital 
So, and they also administered Narcan. There was no reaction. So, you know, that should tell them that Not you know, OD. without a reaction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were a lot of signs there showing that it wasn't any kind of drug use and she could have easily verified that with the hospital staff right, because right. I think they do that like right away. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she just wanted to kind of create her own narrative. I felt like, so we did, um, we start looking through the apartment um, besides the big uh, spot where his head was, uh, which is just, it was a lot of blood. Uh, we start finding blood spatter on other places. And there was at one point, there was like a blood spatter that was almost up to the ceiling. And I thought for the investigation, I thought the fact that they were kind of quiet about it meant that they were investigating, but actually them being quiet was because they weren't investigating. Right. Yeah. And as an investigator of all the FBI agents and homicide detectives that I've talked to, the number one thing that you don't do is have confirmation bias. Like your female detective is already writing a narrative in her head. Therefore, she's not going to have the time and space or even want to go look at other avenues of possibilities. So Mm -hmm. right there, she's kind of like roadblocking the situation on top of that, of them not doing their due diligence. I mean, I've looked at dozens of murders and and, and domestic violence, just all this stuff. And it's, you know, blood splatter on the ceiling that doesn't just get there from someone Mm -hmm. falling and hitting their head or someone ransacking the apartment. That is blunt force trauma with with something you know so that's that's crazy i didn't even know that 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 the blood splatter wow and if you look at the the blood spatter on for his head which i don't know if you would say really spatter but where the blood imprint was Mm -hmm. there is spray coming out of the back of his head and it's a very distinct pattern you can make out his the lines of his neck the lines of his shoulders and the police report tells you that he was found on his left side so it's the only way that it could be he was found on his left side facing the door the blood spray is coming out of the back and they were trying to say that he aspirated this blood but the police report says the blood on his face is dry, but he was bleeding from his head and it was pooling from his head. And then there was also this blood spray, which later I find like I'm looking through the head scan and one of his vertebrae in his neck, it's like, it's just off to the side. And they wrote in the medical note that maybe he had scoliosis of the neck and yes I'm not kidding yes yes and I'm like no he didn't have scoliosis because he couldn't join the navy if he had scoliosis but he never did so they're literally looking at what I think is called like a hangman's fracture the the vertebrae is you know it's a little bit off to the side Mm -hmm. and they put scoliosis why wouldn't they reach out to you and say hey did he have any history of scoliosis and blah 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 they just wrote it off like it is. Yes. That is fucking bullshit. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, um, you know, and this is something that should have been looked at by forensics, people yes. that knew what they were doing, not just guessing. Um, but he was laying in a distinct 
way he couldn't move and with his neck. I think the reason that he didn't move is because he was paralyzed. I think he laid right there and I think he was paralyzed along with everything else that had happened right to yeah. him. Good. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say when you showed up, didn't did the um the emergency, you know, the doctors and nurses, did did they ask you, did he get hit by a car? No. So when so he had hypothermia, they mm -hmm. had him in what they called um, I think they called it a bear hugger. So it's this kind of like um not an electric blanket, um, but like kind of like a medical insulated type thing. Uh, so I didn't really see everything all over his body. I did mm. see the large bruises on his legs, but I wasn't seeing everything. So at first I, I was asking, I was like, did he have like a really bad fall? Like I just could not make sense of what had happened to him. I hadn't seen the destruction in the apartment. All I see is, you know, blood, um, the two very black eyes um, and the bruising, some of the bruising on his legs. And of course he had a gown on covering a lot of the bruising too. The, the mark on his face, it looked like a giant gash. Was that just dry blood or was that an actual gash? Um, he actually had, so there was profuse bleeding from his nose. And if you look at the photo, there's these two That's lines what I, yeah, yeah. Of, and it's blood. And if you think about it, blood doesn't flow in perfect lines. We think he was gagged. And we think that's why the lines are so, have Distinct. such a perfect edge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. But at this time, I, you know, it, this is things that you find out yep. after and really looking at the photos and mm -hmm. trying to piece things together. Uh, when they put him in the ICU, I would ask every single nurse, well, like, what do you think could have happened? Because I didn't know of him really associating with anyone. And I didn't know that he had had anyone coming over to his apartment. So all I'm thinking is that he had been in his apartment by himself. Mm -hmm. So what happened to him? And one of the ICU nurses said, honestly, he looks like someone who was hit by a vehicle. And so I did remember that happening or her saying that. And um, we just keep looking at, there's so many injuries, yeah. all of his organs in internal, external, all of his organs shutting down. The first emergency room doctor showed me the urine bag and the urine bag had a lot of sediment in it. And he said, if you see this, it's like his kidneys are breaking down. They're like failing, yes. Um, but he was bruised. The bruises are mentioned in the search warrants. Um, and there were bruises that I didn't see because they had him hooked up to three forms of life support. So I didn't want to get over there and, you know, um, accidentally move something mm -hmm. so I I stayed on his right side and all the equipment was on the left side so there was a lot of places that I didn't even see the bruising and when he died Brandon had a lot of tattoos and my thought was like you know I don't get to ask him about these tattoos or hear the stories about him so I was like let me and I told the nurses I said let me I want to take pictures of his tattoos and later we were able to take what I was taking 
photos of his tattoos, but go back and see his injuries Mm -hmm. in a lot of those photos. But my daughter had the forethought that she, um, she took photos of my brother in the state, I guess, you know, um, the younger generations, they kind of document everything that way, you know, so it's, it's, I'm glad that she did that, um, which might seem strange to some people that, you know, to, to take a picture of your loved one in that condition, but I'm so glad that she did right? because if without, you know, if, if it had turned into a cold case, um, we may have never even saw the photos of him or to be able to put it out there that this case needs attention um, without even having those initial photos. Right. Right. Now when they were on the scene, so since he was not, he hasn't, he didn't pass away at, at his apartment. Cause I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, they came in with, you know, a photographer and friend like all this stuff, but they wouldn't have done that at that point. Cause some crime scenes bodies lay there for hours as they're mm-hmm. collecting evidence and all that stuff. But the fact that he was still yeah. alive, they had to kind of like move quickly and get him to the hospital. So there was no photos of him in the situation or the state that he was at, at his apartment. Correct. Right. There's no photos, but it is documented in the police report of where he was, uh, what position he was in. It's also then that was also relayed on the um, investigative report, like the first autopsy. So when what they did was they took him down for to the morgue and they did kind of a pre autopsy. I'm not really sure of exactly what you call it, but it's like they they did a report. They marked different things about his injuries, his body, but it wasn't very thorough. And then they took his body to the state medical examiner. But one thing about when the police went in, which really bothered me was that I kept hearing them say that Brandon was barricaded in his apartment. And I said, what do you mean he was barricaded? And then I was told, oh, that's just kind of a language that they use. But then my daughter-in-law told me that they called my son and her and also said that he was heavily barricaded in his apartment. And I was like, what are they talking about? But no, nobody would answer my question about why they kept saying he was barricaded. So then I get the crime scene photos and you can see, um, because when they do crime scene photos, the first thing they do is they go in and they take photos before anything is touched or anything is moved for investigation. So these initial photos, you can see them turning the key and going in and there's nothing. There's nothing blocking the path. You can see all the way in. It was ransacked and it was a mess, but there was no barricade of any sort. The deadbolt was locked, that's it. And then you see the, the back door, there's, he had like kind of a, cart on wheels there's a cart on wheels with some boxes on it but it wasn't really it's like you know you could go around the cart and there was a clear path there was like two feet clear for the doors there was no barricade and then as far as where his body laid they did have to I believe they had to take the door off to get to him so they removed the door and put that in the bathroom so they could tend to Brandon but I'm like if someone falls unconscious and they're laying there in a coma they didn't barricade 
they're right. at the door with their body. They literally, you know, they're in a coma. That's not an in, right. intentional barricade. Right. And they kept saying this. And I, I just think like, why were they saying this? It was part of this narrative to make it like that he had some kind of um, mental breakdown and mm-hmm. was in there barricading himself and beating himself and doing drugs and all the other crazy things that they came up with. Right. Yeah. That was kind of the synopsis I, I gathered was like the, the police were basically concluding that he barricaded himself in that he was like almost like a last stand and he was just going crazy on himself and like beating himself to death. And then, you know, the pneumonia, then the, 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 it's just none of it, not, not one piece of it adds up and makes sense to, like I said earlier, like the, who he was, even that, like, you know, and Eeyore's mother, seems like you guys had a very good, open, transparent relationship. If there was anything that was that serious where it would result in this, you probably would have had some intuition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the text, I know the texts were a little weird. So they did have me concerned, not at the time that I got them, but then when he didn't answer the door, mm-hmm. I will admit that came to mind. I thought, okay, he's lost his job. I get these strange texts and now he's not answering the door. So of course that came to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but then like once I saw his body and the bruises, I thought, okay, now what happened here? Because this doesn't make sense. It wasn't any kind of self-injury. He was bruised everywhere, everywhere, front and back. He had defensive wounds on his hands, cuts. He had signs of skull fracture, Um, just bruises the size of sheets of paper on him. He was left-handed, but he had like a bruise on his heart. He had a bruise like, well, on both sides, um, the flanks Mm -hmm. um, were bruised, heavily bruised, bruised on his back, bruised above his, um, trying to think of the word for it, but his, uh, the crack of his butt, uh, it was all bruised up there and they did a rape kit on him. Nothing. They didn't process it. And I'm asking for them to process it now. Um, he was bruised on the backs of his knees. He, on the bottoms of his feet. Like places, places where like, if someone did this to themselves, they couldn't really physically even get They to couldn't. It. No, they couldn't. You cannot, you cannot bruise straight across the backs, back of your knees. Right. It's not possible. Um, his testicles were severely bruised. His inner thighs were heavily bruised. His testicles were like purple and black. What? Yes. Like I, I feel that he was possibly tortured. Right. That, that, like what you're describing sounds like someone who was, was tortured over a period of time too. Cause like you said, you know, mm-hmm. you've, they found him on Thursday do you have any answer or conclusion from medical examiner or anybody else that has any, maybe people that saw him that with in the coming days of like how long he was there? Do you, th- do you know that? Um, to be honest, I feel like I was the only one trying to establish a timeline that was really important to me to try to put together what happened. And there was also supposedly this phone call that happened Tuesday night at around nine 30 p.m. and this 
female said that she talked to Brandon for 13 minutes. So the male detective had got the search warrant back for his phone. And I will say the male detective who was the lead detective on the case was treating the case as a homicide. So when it started out, he was working it as a homicide, but it just was a very slow, it wasn't a, like an active investigation. It had a very low priority, but it was being treated as a homicide. Did you get any so, answers of why it wasn't being treated like quickly and like, like what, why? No, I, I didn't realize that they weren't really doing anything on the case. They were, you know, not in a lot of, I mean, I did communicate with the the male detective, but it, I felt like it was mostly me finding things out mm -hmm. and kind of spoon feeding it to the detectives, um, which I will tell you about this female that comes into the picture. Yes. Um, so how we find out about both of these females is that the detective, the male detective does the search warrant on his phone and he finds out that Brandon had been in heavy contact with two females, the one in Virginia and one from South Carolina. So the one that supposedly talked to him Tuesday night, talked to him for 13 minutes. But later I find out that I called him right before and I called him after and my calls weren't answered. And then I go back and after I start putting this together, I realize Brandon was never on that phone call Tuesday, which takes it back to Monday. So I don't know who she talked to, but whoever it was, was in Brandon's apartment. What? On his phone. Yes. So the, so you're saying this, this girl was in the apartment at that point, Brandon could have been in the state that he was in or at least starting. And then she's the one that made the phone call. Um, I think the two, I personally think the two females know each other. So it was treated, it was thought at the time that Brandon was possibly moving away from one female and more interested in another and mm -hmm. po possibly a jealousy situation. But I think the two females know each other and that was never really looked at. And I think the one female that called from Virginia was talking to the female from South Carolina on Brandon's phone. What about what? Do you have any idea of what she would possibly want to call that person for? Now, do you mean you um, think you, they knew each other in a good way or like, like collaborated together or the jealousy? I, I, I hate you. It was either, it was no, not a jealousy thing. It was either a collaboration or, um, possibly one covering for the other somehow hmm. you know I but I think it was more of like I think it was together mm -hmm. and then her maybe calling and checking on the status of the cleanup or something like that which you know this is my speculation right I don't right. have proof of that but that's what I'm working toward and there is some kind of roundabout proof but I, ca I can't really talk about that yet but totally I do think they know each other so the um the female from South Carolina um can I say her name or should I not say her name what do I, you think um I wouldn't say I'll her just, name just just okay. 
save okay. face it's, and don't get okay. you in it's, any situation. Okay. Um, the female from South Carolina mm -hmm. contacts my daughter-in-law mm -hmm. and she sends this long message to my daughter-in-law and basically it's like she's validating herself that she was Brandon's girlfriend because he hadn't really told us about her. He did earlier in the year told his sister that he was seeing a girl, but she's from Russia and she's going to be leaving and going back to Russia. So he didn't think it was going to go anywhere. Right. So that was back in February. Um, so she's the one that contacted, sent this very long message. She knew all about Brandon. Um, and I thought, well, she's got to know something. She's got to know who his friends were, who might have went to his apartment, where he had been. And so I called the police and I told them about this female. So this was before the search warrant even come back. And I don't think that they, I don't think they contacted her right away. I think they did not contact her until the search warrant came in. Okay. So, um, so I start talking to her and cause I'm like, she knows something. And then as I start talking to her, the weirder it gets. And I end up after about two weeks of talking to her, I go into the police and I'm like, she's a pathological liar. I told them that she has all of the symptoms of a psychopath. And I said, she really reminds me of a serial killer, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And narcissist. yes, she was narcissistic. Um, but I will also say this, that even when she was pathologically lying, there would be these shreds of truth to what she would say. So I was always trying to decipher what you know, go through everything and, and find out which parts were true. Mm -hmm. Right. So can you, so the, she, the she, example she, of the, uh, the person who she talked to at Brandon's apartment, right. His neighbor, right. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, on the 17th of September, so this would have been four days after Brandon died, she goes to the apartment and she says that she's pounding on the door and the neighbor tells her that he has passed away. And she says that she has MS and that she had her cane with her and that she almost passed out. That's what she told you. That's what she told me. Yes. And the neighbor told me that, no, she asked where he was she didn't have a cane and she said I'm sorry I believe he passed away and she said okay thank you and shook out her hand to shake hands with her got in her vehicle and made a phone call do you know to who no I don't know who she called so do you she think did that... Say that she said that she called the police department and as a lot of these people do it there was often times where she was trying to inject herself oh, into classic the case. classic yes. inserting yourself being there arsons do this all the time they'll blow they'll burn a house they'll be right there watching it brandon you have no idea you know that's exactly true now when yes. do you think that this could be her confirming going to the apartment confirming that he is dead and then him her going and calling whoever it was saying okay it's official that's mm -hmm. I'm assuming your thought. Yeah. 
I've thought that, yes. But I've also, um, one of the things that I've thought is that when she said that she was pounding on the door and she almost passed out, I feel like she was watching and she's actually saying what I was doing. And she was saying that that was her. That she saw me pounding on Brandon's door. She saw me almost pass out. And then she gives that story back to me that that's what she did. Wow. Wow. Uh, do, do you think and the that reason she was why there? Yeah, yeah, I, yes, yeah, because yeah, the next yeah. day on, okay, so they, they did a couple of search warrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brandon was found on the 12th. The police did go right away um, as far as doing the photos. Like he was still right there in the hospital um, before he had even been transferred and they were already going in to take the crime scene photos. Right. Um, the next day they go back and they start processing everything. And he still has not died, but he's in the other hospital. And they also do a search warrant on his truck. And in the search warrant photos, five spaces down, there is a vehicle that matches her vehicle. And that's why I feel like she was there watching. And also the day that we started cleaning out the apartment was the day that she contacted the family to ask if she could have some of his clothing on that very day. So I, afterward, you know, I put this together of like, well, why did she call on, or why did she contact the family on that day to ask for her? She asked for her clothing back and said that she left some makeup and could she have something of Brandon's? Like why it's that day. Yeah. And speaking of arson, the strange thing is, so Brandon's apartment section, there's several sections. Um, It's like an apartment community and his apartment building, it's almost like a U shape. So there is a building that flanks his building. Well, two buildings. And it's the one, if you're looking at it, it's the one on the right side. It was on fire July 4th of 2019 and then it was on fire July 5th of 2020 almost a one year anniversary same place on fire and if you go back and look at the photos again there is a vehicle parked there that matches her vehicle and I can't confirm that it's hers but it is definitely a vehicle that matches color make and model wow so, so your theory is that she was there watching you guys go to the apartment, the cops being there, kind of just watching her work, basically. Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm saying it's it's possible. It's, right. Of course, all this is kind of almost my theory your, your trying theories. to find out yes. what happened. But I will tell you that I think it's highly probable after getting to know her, know her personality. The more I learn, the stranger it gets. And the more that when I went in and I said she's potentially a serial killer, that I might be right. Right. So what about this other girl? So the other female um, who lived in Virginia, um, one of the strange things, she said that she had this phone call. She said that she met Brandon one time. Uh, Someone asked her, you know, was it love at first sight or 
more about the relationship. Mm -hmm. And it was basically just that he was a nice guy. There was no real love thing going on. And she met him once and hung out with him. And then she tells me that she has his shirt if I want it back. And she says, it's a silly thing to keep, but it's sentimental. But then I go back and I'm thinking, why does she have his shirt? I've never met anyone for a few hours and ended up with their shirt. And she's been asked about that shirt several times. And she never said that she spilled something on herself or that there was, you know, some kind of reason that she would have his shirt. And, um, she had an Instagram account where she's blocked me since I started figuring things out, but I, I saw on her Instagram, he passed away. She never posted anything about him. In fact, right after he died, both females got brand new phones and deleted everything to do with Brandon. They deleted all the photos, um, everything. As soon as the detective, as soon as the detective called them about Brandon, they got new phones deleted everything so I just yes and I and I just think about the shirt and I'm like why does she have a shirt and I think the reason is that they were involved in a cleanup there was a lot of water and a lot of blood and they put Brandon's clothes on and that's why they have Brandon's clothing right yeah and and so because I mean if if I gave someone a shirt I would more than likely have a type of relationship with them, see them more than once. And then if mm-hmm. I died, I would assume that they would, if they cared about me that much and they had something to remember me from, they would at least mm-hmm. maybe pay tribute or my condolences or something. That's very odd. Mm-hmm. Very odd. Do, so yes. do you think that both of them, like, I mean, I don't know how big they are. I know Brandon, he was a big boy, he's six foot. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a burly guy. So I don't know how big these women are. Do you think that they acted alone to where they could potentially do something to him in, in that capacity? Because like I said, when you see these photos, you, like you said, you're looking at like someone that looks like they've been tortured for days by like just legit people that know what they're doing mm-hmm. is what it seemed like. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you think that there's more to that? So at first I thought you know, there's no way that one female could do that alone. But then as you know, you go and you think about it, well, I can, if, you know, if I'm dragging someone or something like that, I actually could do that. And they, they showed that even like in the Jody Arias cases that she moved his body. Mm-hmm. And so I got to thinking about it before there was water. Um, if they put a blanket under him, he could have been moved true and what i don't know is it did they bring him in and take him to the bedroom or did all of this happen in the apartment and the reason that i don't know that is because later on now the police did conduct a search warrant they took crime scene photos of the truck and in the crime scene photos, you can see in the console, there's all these papers and they're wet and bloody. And he had this paycheck and it has, it's wet and it has blood on it. And the strange thing is, is that it had been like a hundred degrees. It was so hot at that time here in North Carolina. Um, 
the day that I found him, it was extremely hot. And I'm thinking that stuff was still wet. So freshly wet, freshly wet. And I kind of feel like was the water still running because I interrupted the cleaning process. Cause like, you were, were calling still... and you were calling and yes. they were like, wait, she might show up. Mm-hmm. Damn. Well, I actually, I actually sent a text that said I'm coming over. And I feel like they may have just left at that point. Wow. So um, that, that makes sense though. They, so you can see that in the crime scene photos. And one day, I know this may sound strange, but I think moms that may have been in this position will know. Um, but I was on the back porch and I still had his vehicle and it was parked in the back. And I always just talk to Brandon and I say, Brandon, you know, I just, I need a clue. I need to understand what happened. And something told me to go to the truck and the sun was just shining a certain way. And I start looking around. I don't really see much. And then I find a credit card, his Visa credit card underneath the passenger seat. And it has blood on it. And then I, yes. And then I start looking and I start pulling out the mats and I'm like, you know, doing this because I see something on them and I'm like, it's red. And I start looking and I'm like, I think there's blood in here. So then I really, I start looking under the seats. I start looking everywhere. So I end up having a private investigator, blue star, the vehicle, we pull the mats out. There was a decorative license plate like that just has like Chevrolet on it and that there was blood pooled inside that license plate and that license plate was in the crime scene photos and I have the blood tested and it's confirmed that it's male DNA blood can you test it it's his to make sure it's his well they couldn't so with what I sent in was the mat and the PI had sprayed blue star on the mat which probably diluted the blood So it was not a strong enough sample to match that it was his blood, but it was male DNA. But I feel like the license plate that is, and I keep it offsite, it's locked up. um, But I feel that license plate has enough in there that they will be able to test that. And his DNA profile has been made. So I think they can test that blood and they'll know that it was his. Um, And then later I... I'm like, okay, so the bank needs to repo the vehicle. We're not keeping it. So they want it back. And I'm like, okay, well, we really need to go through this one last time. And we start, so the cup holders had uh, these like funnel shaped things to them. So we start like looking through the console because that's where the blue star really lit Lit up up. a lot. The whole truck did, the back seat, um, all inside floor, yes all over the inside like sp- um, spatter or just like pool like just stain uh, it looked like the back seats somebody had wiped them down so the blue star reacted all over the seats but it looked like they had been like wiped. smears so it was a very smooth yes very smooth but wow. underneath the seats it looks like they didn't clean there and it looks like blood with like carpet cleaning spray on them and there was a can of carpet cleaner in the back seat of the truck and it has what looks like blood on it and the spray from the where i said the bathroom walls mm-hmm. had been sprayed there was a spray bottle 
in the back of his truck. And the spray bottle inside the nozzle looks like it has blood, like where you put the nozzle back on. It looks like it has blood on it. Well, we take the console apart and it, you know, I've got to get it tested because he did chew tobacco. So I've got to make sure that it wasn't something like that spilled, but it doesn't look like that. It looks like blood and it is literally soaked. So what? at this point, we are trying to figure out, was he transported in the truck? Because at first I thought, okay, is this where they had like cleanup and they brought things out to the truck like and back it and forth. blood? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And there was also a swipe where the seat was moved, um, like where someone moved the seat. Mm -hmm. And I know the female uh, would definitely have to move the seat to be able to reach. Right. And she did send me a message that she had driven his truck. So like I said, this, so I get these messages and there's like, if you, if you have learned about serial killers, they like to dangle clues. They like to say things to you. Like she kept asking where his dog tags were. Have you found his dog tags? And I think she had his dog tags. So you think she's just toying we with you? We never found them. Yes, I think she likes to taunt people. And she even said that she was one step ahead. And one she of said the things that? that was, yes, she said that she stays one step ahead. Mm -hmm. She, I mean, I was in commun heavy communication with her for 10 months. And I have a lot of messages and some really strange things, strange recordings. Um, I the more I talked to her, the more I knew that she was involved. And so I started recording her Great. and I sent these to the police even before she was questioned. And in the recording, she says that she has a dream and in her dream, something happened in the bathroom and he fell forward and his phone went forward and his phone was found under the bed, which is right in front of the bathroom where he would have fell and it would have potentially yes. landed. And she's, yes. And then she tells me in another dream that in her dream that he's naked, he's wrapped up in a sheet and he's by the closet. And when you get the crime scene photos, you see the sheet with blood on it. And from the police report and where the blood, the big blood print of his head was right by the closet just like she said in the dream and a lot of people have said that was enough to indict her right there right the guilty knowledge that she was um saying was enough to indict her and the police didn't do anything so it's it's still like oh well it's still another maybe about two weeks before she comes in for questioning and she finally goes in for questioning i recorded her she was totally freaking out that she had to go in for questioning and then all of a sudden she kind of starts laughing. It's just really bizarre behavior. Um, she goes in for questioning and when she gets out, she ended up calling me and she was laughing. She walked away from that interview with the police laughing. Cause she, she feels like them. she probably got away with, she was like, she said, she said, is that it? And then started laughing. Well, shame on the detectives too. Cause they probably did not do a thorough, you know, job of interrogating her and, and, and asking her all the right questions. Cause if she's nervous before she goes in and she comes out laughing, 
Either she's a if complete they, psychopath or they just didn't do a good job. Both. both. And I think it's both. <laughs> right. It's both. Yeah. Um, but if they would have listened to the guilty knowledge that she had, that she could have only known had she have been at that crime scene. Right. Um, and then, you know, looked at the crime scene photos and it was all there. And you have recorded evidence of her telling you that these yeah. dreams are so vivid and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. All a detective yeah. would have to do is say, can you explain why you would tell the mother of, of this victim this? And then also here's the crime scene photo that you described in this said dream. Can you please mm-hmm. explain why these are the same? That, mm-hmm. that seems so basic. And the police did check her phone because they wanted to see if her phone pinged in the area mm-hmm. during that time. But one of the problems with that is they never established a, a timeline. So when were they checking? True. Yeah, you know, so they wouldn't how, even know when you know, what to know. Day, yeah. Yes, what day were they checking? And I told them when I would be on the phone with her, she would answer another phone. Or she would say, that's my other phone. She had more than one phone. She had burner phones. So she, did, she could have left her phone in South Carolina and came to North Carolina every day. And there, you know, the, the search warrant is not going to show where she was. Right. Yeah. Where and, she and, actually was. And the cops need a search warrant. They would need it for each and every phone. They would mm-hmm. A, need to know that she even had other phones, but B, mm-hmm. they would, that, that takes work to get multiple search. So that's just, mm-hmm. what the fuck? But they could have, I mean, they didn't, you know, I really feel like they should have done a search warrant for her vehicle and for her home. I think they would have found her other phones and they would have found a lot on the phones. Um, I think she potentially recorded what was done to Brandon. You think so? And yeah, I think it's very possible because not only does she know all of the details, I mean, she knows in depth of the details. Like she would continually talk about the food like the food that was there, um, the dog tags, just different different things about the crime scene. So she has a remarkable memory or she took her own photos and videos of the crime. Right, right. yeah, that's that would be the only two options at that point. And that, you're exactly right as far as like, and not only inserting themselves in this in crime stuff like that but i just can't believe i did not know that 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 she was to be i i knew i heard about the dreams um mm-hmm. i heard also another about another dream that uh wasn't there's another dream that she uh that brandon was hit by his own car by a woman in like a, a dive bar or yes. something yes. can you talk about that for a second yes um she did send a photo that that she had a dream that they were at a bar and that he was hit with his vehicle and that was that was a little bit later on and there was the outside of the truck the the front bumper and grill um it was reactive for blue star um we went through everything trying to think of what could cause a false positive i couldn't really find anything and then i go back in my photos where my dog was sniffing around the front of the grill. And then I look closely and then I see these like dark places of 
the vehicle. And I think that was blood on the grill of the vehicle. So I'm thinking like, why was that there? So I am a little confused about how the truck fits in. Did, did they hit him with his vehicle and then put him inside it take and then the take apart. him inside? But the other part of this is that I believe he was being poisoned. And I go back to why he was in the hospital seven months prior and he had been intubated that he went to work. It was a Monday. He hadn't been using any drugs. I believe it was a Monday. Um, it was the 18th of February. Um, and he's at work and something is not right. So the work, um, I actually recently talked to them and they said they were concerned that he had come into contact with something at work and they sent him to do a urine screening. Mm -hmm. So he left, he left that place and he stopped at McDonald's and um, people noticed like that he was throwing up. He didn't seem right. They call the police and they call an ambulance and he didn't want to go. Um, I think whatever was affecting him also affected his memory. So he, wa he wasn't just, he wasn't aware of exactly what was going on. Right. And by the time they get him to the emergency room, he's falling unconscious. They have to intubate him. He's in respiratory distress. And even on a ventilator, they cannot regulate his breathing and his air. So he is intubated for five days. And something that I just found out in the medical records was that um, when they tried to extubate him, like take the, the intubation out, mm -hmm. um, he freaked out and he was combative. He was spitting. He was trying to get free. Well, they tried to use this and say that he had psychosis, but I start looking up all these articles in the medical journals mm -hmm. this is common for anyone yeah. to be intubated and also the sedatives that they put them on cause people to have very bad nightmares bad dreams and this can continue on even after they're discharged from the hospital mm -hmm. so this psychosis that they were talking about and that they labeled him with I don't even know that it ever existed because right. this is actually something that is very common. Um, and I'm sure they're finding more about this with COVID and right. more people on respirators, but the medical journalism is out there on this topic. And, you know, as so I look up psychosis and it talks about hallucinations, delusions, but it didn't seem like he was having that. He was vomiting falling unconscious, um, didn't really want to be taken to the hospital because in his mind, he had no reason he, he wasn't sick. He wasn't, you know, he had a, enough cognitive, um, enough just an reality aware, to, to know like, Hey, I haven't done anything. I'm not sick. I don't want to be taken to the hospital, but he was very sick and he didn't realize that he was in this respiratory distress and falling unconscious. So that was February, five days in the ICU. I didn't know how serious it was. They really didn't express to me how serious that he had been. And they really had no explanation. Mm 
-hmm. And later the medical examiner tries to say that he had pneumonia, but it clearly states in the medical record that he's in respiratory distress and there is no pneumonia. And this is the first intubation. The first time in February. So then two months later um, in April, he is sick again. And he goes to, um, one of the times he goes to urgent care and then another two months in the ER. So I'm trying to remember which ended up, but so he has urgent care, the ER, and all of these symptoms are the same, the nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, falling unconscious. Um, nobody ever really figures out what's wrong with him. Didn't test and anything? Then, no. And one of the things that they really should have tested for poisoning is because in the February stay in the ICU, he had what is called calcium, calcium crystal oxalate in his urine. And that is a specific symptom of antifreeze poisoning. So you don't think it's arsenic, you think it's... Um... Um, I think it could be both. I think she is someone who may dabble with different poisons. And I think that when I go back to what I said about the serial, serial killer, I don't think Brandon is the only one. We've been looking into her past, um, into her past and looking into people close to her. And there is a lot of death and there are a lot of sick people. And a lot of the symptoms are those of poisoning. It's not something that, you know, like I said, this is my speculation, um, but we're starting to gather what we, what we see about these people and, um, and even small animals, like, you know, maybe it's unrelated, but animals disappearing and dying too whoa like your animals no not mine oh. uh, brandon didn't have any animal he did love animals but he didn't have any right um but just like i said looking into her past um her relationships people around her i mean the circumstantial evidence alone is I've seen cases I've on TV that have way less that convictions for life. So, you know, the circumstantial evidence that you're even talking about today, a lot of it's not just your theory. It's like the fact of the vivid dreams, the, the putting yourself there, like the car that meets the description. Unfortunately, all that went, you know, unresolved and un, you know, uh, it wasn't unearthed by the proper authorities. It's coming from a mother who a lot of people might look at with tunnel vision and, and confirmation bias because it's your son, which is why mm -hmm. I was like, I had to do my own research because, I mean, I would do the same thing if it was my child, regardless of if I wanted to believe it or not. But everything that you've told me that I've read and I've, I've watched is it's remarkable that nothing has been done on a, a you know, a legitimate side. It's not, I'm, I'm, I'm saying like, aside from you doing all of this stuff that it's not looked at in a different way. And um, which is why I think, um, you know, the arsenic and the poisoning side, which is why I was reached out to by, um, by someone this morning, this is why we're talking today is because I have interviewed someone who, who wrote a book about his situation and mm -hmm. he was poisoned um, by his wife, who was just 
And I mean, he, he was lucky enough to realize it, get out of that situation. And he did a hair follicle, hair and nail follicle test and found out he was being poisoned. And the symptoms that he had are exactly what you're describing that Brandon had. Mm-hmm. Very sick. He was, he ended up in a, uh, uh, he was forced to go into a um, psych ward because he was mentally wow. unstable and everything, which is what you're describing. Yeah. Brandon. So, and there, there was another female. So when I meet, so like I said, I was in contact with this female for 10 months and we actually met a few times. The first time I met her. um, Yes. The South Carolina female. And then when I met with her, she starts telling me about her friend, Didi. And she tells me that Didi's very sick and Didi is dying and that she stays with her friend Didi uh, while the husband is away. Well, then I find out that Didi was a real person and Didi died and there's all these symptoms and that the death was supposed to be this overdose of cold medicine, but there was also this psychosis and strange things. And I'm like, Didi was 37. People do not get bipolar at age 37. Um, there were no drugs. I think there was like, um, you know, maybe I shouldn't put this out there, but you know, it was just, um, like a little bit of weed or something was Mm -hmm. found, but there were no, um, hard drugs that would explain some kind of psychosis. So, um, I'm thinking, and Didi's case was not in the newspaper. There was nothing about her husband being away. No one could know these details. If unless they knew her and they were involved in, in some life. way, shape, or form, they yeah. couldn't know these things. Right. Very similar so, to Brandon. Yes. So I question what is her relationship to Dee Dee and Dee Dee dying just a few days after Brandon. So Dee Dee, so the 17th, when this female from South Carolina came up to check on Brandon was probably the day that Dee Dee was overdosed. She was found on the 18th and she was already in rigor mortis. Oh, so so I'm looking at the 17th, 18th. And through investigation, something that I've learned about the female in South Carolina is that the husband works like very long days, um, 12 hour days. Then you have to think of time commuting, errands, things like that. So she has a lot of time on her own and she does not have a strong alibi. So so this woman has a husband. Yes, she was married the whole time that she was supposedly in this relationship with Brandon. She was married. And there, there's a lot that I won't go into yet with her. We may have to have a follow-up. <laughs> interview after some of it can come out but the more we learn the worse it looks the worse for her. it is right. Mm-hmm. right the worse it looks for her and for society that this person um is dangerous right yeah. and i wonder i wonder how many brandons are out there right she she has traveled quite a bit right and just leaving a mark pretty much everywhere she goes in some way shape or form it seems like mm-hmm. And if you think about, she only met Brandon in January. He almost died in February. So how many people are affected this way to where she's met them and quickly 
done something like this. Right. It, you know, and if he would have died in February, we would have had no, really no clue what happened. Right. Yeah. Because then later on is what really happened to him and when mm-hmm. he died and everything like that. And like you said, him and, fighting and giving, he basically gave you evidence and stuff mm-hmm. to go off of. Yes. Yeah. Going through medical notes and, you know, it was just, um, so, so I had the medical notes from when he died and I just, you know, I just kept thinking like, nothing makes sense. Nothing adds up. It's mm-hmm. just, you cannot make, you cannot connect the dots with the, the whole case. Like everything, something just seems off. Right. And I knew that he had been in the hospital prior and so much had been going on, but I finally said, I've got to order these records from February. They sent over 500 pages. I sat down at the kitchen table. I didn't move out of my chair for basically two days. I, I barely moved and I went through every single page. And as I start going through there and I have a friend that I talk to a lot and she would always tell me, she would say, well, why is that antifreeze in his part apartment? Why is that antifreeze sitting there in his apartment? Yeah. And if you look at the crime scene photos and you look closely, there's a bug spray and there is an antifreeze and both of them, there's dust under the handle, but the outsides of the bottles have been wiped down. Wow. Which is really strange. And I'm like, Brandon was not wiping down the antifreeze and the bug spray. He was not, right. you know, he was not a neat freak <laughs> and he definitely right. wasn't. Yeah, no OCD. Yeah. Yeah. He was not cleaning the antifreeze bottle, but someone else, it looked like someone else wanted to wipe it down. Wow. Um, but, um, and then going back to Edith, there was an unidentified white powder. Uh, she had an overdose of, I believe it was cold medicine, and there was an unidentified white pattern. I guess they just didn't even check it. So there's no telling what, what that, that powder was. was. What the fuck, man? Mm-hmm. Ash, it, it, and like I said, 37 years old, you don't just no. get bipolar. That's very, very rare. So yeah. that doesn't explain, it does not explain all the sudden psychosis with her. Right. So give me like your, like we'll end with um, kind of like a, your synopsis of what, what do you truly think happened to Brandon? I think that she poisoned him early in February and that she had continued to poison him about every two months. Um, I believe the detective had asked her to explain why she was in and out of his life. I think she would poison him and disappear. So that way she couldn't be in like involved. She wouldn't be a suspect because she wouldn't be around, Mm -hmm. but I think she was watching. I think everything that she would watch after it happened, but she would tell people that she was going back to Russia. So she's not from Russia. She's from Maine originally lived in South Carolina. Uh, She does not have MS. She does have a black belt in martial arts. That's true. She, but she is the narcissist because she didn't just say that she had a black belt. She said that she had like a fifth degree black belt in several different martial arts. So it was exaggerated. So Mm -hmm. that's why at first I didn't even believe that she had a black belt, but then we find out where she went to martial arts. Um, She corresponds with a lot of inmates from prison. Um, She has a strange 
like choice of friends. Um, just a very um, suspicious person. <laughs> yes, I'm just at a loss of words to wh- how to even describe her. It's it's very unusual. Right. Right. So you think that she and, was poisoning him and then yes. What? I think she was poisoning him. And then Brandon had um so he had been let go from his job. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there was a financial motive. He had like thirteen thousand dollars in the bank. So I feel like that there she would send messages that her and Brandon were gonna open this bank account together, that she was gonna move in with him. And that she felt like that she should be entitled to that money because they were going to get married. She told you this? She she actually said this to me. Jesus Christ. I have messages where she has sent um, messages that they were going to open, excuse me, a bank account together. And one of the strange things was that, so what happened with his money was the bank had a he had a loan so they took the money out of his account and applied it to the loan Mm -hmm. so um that was like october 15th and i may be a little off on my days but it was the days were back to back so like october 15th the bank sends out a letter that they're taking the thirteen thousand or whatever amount it was exactly and applying it to this loan The next day, she gives a call and says that she's really upset because someone took a whole bunch of money of hers. So I think she had been monitoring his bank account, that she had some kind of designs on getting a hold of his money. And again, like I said, I found that bloody Visa card that was attached to his bank under the seat. And I think that uh, the key, the spare key in February seven months before he died had come up missing. And I think she was going in his apartment when he wasn't home, when he was at work. I think she was going through his documents, seeing what kind of income he had. Maybe they were gonna make him become a missing person. I thought that Um, there was a tarp in the back of his truck. And I'm like, there is absolutely no reason why Brandon would have a tarp. He lived in an apartment. Right. The tarp would not fit the back of his truck. It would fit a body, but not not the size of his truck. Right. He didn't have a grill. He didn't like to go camping, and he was not an outdoorsman. Right. So why would he have tarp? So I'm like, why is that tarp back there? It, right. It's definitely left a red flag. Um, and I think she was poisoning him all those times he got let go. Maybe she was concerned about the money being spent because he would need it. Mm-hmm. Um, And then something about Brandon, like I didn't think of this until much later, but Brandon was always having headhunters call him because he had a lot of specific skills that other people didn't have, like dealing with um, the nuclear reactor or different safety schools or different things that he had been through. So the text messages were kind of making it sound like he was, you know, um, desperate or you know and I don't want to say exactly what they were so that maybe someone can be questioned later on about them um but kind of making it sound like uh, I think they were trying to make it make him sound suicidal um but then I got to thinking about it and I thought you know headhunters were always calling Brandon even like when I took him to the airport 
which was just a couple of weeks before he died, he was on the phone with a headhunter. So it, he wasn't in yeah. that state of desperation. No. No. And I didn't think of it at the time. You know, you don't, you can't think of everything. Right. Um, of course. You don't even think of that stuff. I mean, why would you? <laughs> and that's and and then another thing was that he had so he died on Friday, but that upcoming Tuesday he had an appointment with an endocrinologist. And I feel like they would have been checking into things um, because whatever was being done to him was affecting his blood work thing is his health was wrecking his health and I think like maybe they were concerned that if he went to that doctor's appointment someone might find out what was happening to him Mm -hmm. so they needed to make sure that he died that time so that's what you think is is the motive for doing it so quickly and Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and then Mm -hmm. So you think that they basically either hit him with his car, transport him to the house, or did it all in the house, but they're all connected. Oh, and yes. And another thing is that um, there were two bottles of diphenhydramine, which is uh, the ingredient of Benadryl, mm-hmm. um, diphenhydramine sleeping pills. And the capsules were squeezed out. You can see the bottles in the crime scene photos and you can see the capsules squeezed out on the floor. You can see the detective sweeping them up and there was diphenhydramine in his system, a high level, they said, but not considered to be toxic, but they don't know that because they never established the timeline. So they can't determine the half-life without they can't say, okay, if he had this level, but he was down for four days, that it was actually an extremely Mount. high yes. level. Yep. That put him and out. They, yes. And they yep. never checked into that. The medical examiner ends up. Um, so then what happened with the case was, so after the male detective did the search warrant on the phone, interviewed her, waiting to get the search warrant back he said he would call me he never did this was right before Christmas so I said okay well maybe it's the holidays you know but I am anxiously awaiting to hear about this search warrant ridiculous I'm sorry yeah didn't hear anything back from him so finally I asked my husband to call and they said he was promoted and put in traffic and the case has now been handed over to the female detective who had said that he was doing meth Right. Great. So great. I have a couple of meetings with her. And then she tells me that they found synthetic marijuana in Brandon's apartment. And I said, well, you know, like still, I, I don't have, I don't have anything from the case file. All I know is my son. And I said, well, if you did, it didn't belong to him because I know that he wasn't doing drugs. He was very concerned about, you know, working and even my daughter told me a story that he went to like a small group party and they were smoking weed and they offered him some and he said no don't even get don't even get the second hand smoke around me because I don't want to come up hot on a yeah job Mm -hmm. and um so I knew that you know that wasn't happening and I told him I said well if you found something like that it wasn't his and I know that he was not doing any of this and and I didn't even know anything about synthetic marijuana so I had to learn after she 
accuse that. And then I realized, okay, it's like a totally different thing. I asked some friends, a very close friend, and she told me, she said, there's absolutely no way Brandon would do synthetic marijuana because of his chemical background and how dangerous it was. She said, there's absolutely no way he would do that. And another thing about them trying to say it was synthetic marijuana. So I do some more research and everything I find out about synthetic marijuana is that when there are these cases of people acting um, very um, just really out there, just crazy things happening, um, it's usually a rash of people. It's not one isolated case, but it's like a bad batch. Mm -hmm. So you will see like multiple people being affected. And so I'm like, okay, so you're saying Brandon took this synthetic marijuana so later I get the evidence log. There's no synthetic marijuana collected. The search once. There's no synthetic marijuana. The male detective never said anything about any drugs or, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. I think they put on the search warrant, they put, um, they collected a marijuana scale. But in fact, there's no such thing as a marijuana scale. There's no, only a scale. such thing. It's just a scale. <laughs> it's just a scale. And some yeah. people use a scale for mar- marijuana. But right. Brandon was a chemist. And so he, he also, would have a scale. <laughs> yes. And he was also a bodybuilder. He also did some of his own supplements where you can, you know, pack your own things right. like that. But right. there was nothing that indicated this synthetic marijuana. Um, there was, you know, and I was like, okay, so who was the drug dealer? Where did he buy it? Like, right. where are you, where is your evidence of saying this? Well, then the female detective literally calls the medical examiner and says this without presenting any evidence and says that they found synthetic marijuana and he took this synthetic marijuana and this is why he's beat himself without providing any evidence. The medical examiner amends the autopsy to say that he purportedly took the substance wow. and never asks for any proof from the detective. And although the talk screen had come back clear and the state toxicologist said that they check for thousands and thousands of compounds and that I could feel pretty safe to say that he did not have synthetic marijuana in his system. They do a second toxicology and they specifically test for synthetic marijuana and there's none detected. Of course, because it's not there. He didn't do it. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any. There was none found. No. What's this fucking lady's deal? This detective. No. And now, you know, what I hit and I have I have filed my complaints with the police department because I said that that is manufacturing evidence that's falsifying evidence Mm -hmm. and that's obstruction of justice right and then not only that but now she has involved another public official a public in a in a public capacity which is also a crime Mm -hmm. and now there's collusion between the two right to cover up a homicide right and these are these are very serious crimes super serious yeah. Yes. And also her remark and, from the meth. And, I mean, just from the jump, she's been not trying to figure out really what happened. Yes. And I mean, and everything I pretty much can back it up. I have proof. I have emails. Right. You know, I met with her. That's why they closed the case. Um, then after 
She closes the case. The very next day, it's in the afternoon, they close the case on February 27th. The very next day, nine o'clock in the morning, about, I send an email and I said, I ask for all of the evidence to be returned to me so that I can seek my own forensic testing. Mm -hmm. She destroyed all the DNA evidence on my son's case. I mean, stuff that you listen to these shows that they may keep for decades. decades yeah. She had it destroyed. I got a few things back and the rest was destroyed. How did she destroy it? And how is she allowed to do that? Um, yeah, exactly. Wow. Exactly. I got a few things back. I got his phone. They took handcuffs because um, he had marks and cuts on him that looked like he was restrained. And the keys to the handcuffs were found in the bedroom. And um, the handcuffs do look like there's residual blood. They oh. look like they had been cleaned, but there looks like there was blood on them. Mm -hmm. um, the keys I haven't opened. So um, I do think he was restrained. I think that rape kit needs to be processed. Um, and it's just, um, it's a big mess. It sounds it like a, a mess. terrible mess and a total yes. botch investigation. Mm -hmm. Everything about it just sounds fishy, you know, and, and it, it's, ugh. and I feel like then as I elevate what's been done and I bring it to the attention of the police department, that this is obstruction of justice, this is corruption. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't falsify evidence because then you compromise your integrity. Right. If she's willing to do that on one case, how what many about other all the other ones? Right, right. Yeah. Have been done. They don't so, want to hear that shit. Mm -mm, no. no. And I feel like they're complicit, you know, with the cover up in a way. I go to the DA's office and I talk to the assistant DA, and he said, Well, maybe the synthetic marijuana metabolized. And I was just like, okay, you're, you know, you are, you are the people that tell the police, the law enforcement, when they need more evidence that they have to go back and get more factual evidence to indict or to prosecute someone. But yet you're sitting here entertaining this crazy philosophy this of yeah. fictional evidence that you absolutely have no proof of to cover up a murder. That's insane. So, and yes, she, you know, Oh my God. I don't even, I'm speechless. Like, this is fucking crazy, man. I've never yes, seen this I, much, like almost deliberate uh, botching yeah. of, of an investigation ever. Mm -hmm. But I feel like Brandon, it may sound kind of strange, but I feel like he helps me. He leads me and I've got amazing friends and my friends help a lot. Right. They, they keep me going a lot of support you know, the people that do know about his case do give me a lot of support, like keep pushing mom, keep questioning, keep trying to get answers. Absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the, the, the first podcast that I did was with, um, Mark and he, he does a lot of, a lot of his cases are the ones that they have not got justice. Mm -hmm. And he asked me, what does justice mean to me? And it kind of caught me off guard, but you know, I think about that a lot now. And question. I think what, what kind of society, if you don't have justice, you don't really have a society, right? You, you, 
kind of crumble with that. And we need to know that our law enforcement and our public officials, that there's transparency, that there is an effort to bring criminals to justice for these kinds of, you know, rape, murder, things like this, that's very serious. And they cannot just be sweeping that under the rug. And when people get away with this, the message is they can do it again. Keep going and going and going. Yeah. And like you said, Mm -hmm. who knows what she's done before, what she's doing Mm -hmm. now and after. I mean, this is crisis Mm -hmm. 2019. I would tell you this like very creepy story. So when I would talk to her on the phone, um, she's in her thirties, but there was almost something like kind of childlike and she would almost speak with a lisp and just this kind of mm, almost like a baby talk sometimes. And then one day I sent a photo to her of a family member so I was starting to find out her identity and kind of put it in her face that like, I know more about you. And she got very angry. She got very angry, very, she called me right away and she was very angry and she sounded, or the voice was the same, but she sounded like a completely different person. So she's just. Like her voice was like the tone of the voice, the sound of the voice was the same but the how do you say it but like how she expressed the voice was different like usually I would talk to her there would be this baby talk this lisp then I talk to her when she's angry and it's totally different that's she's crazy she almost sounds professional and normal like she could turn it on yes And she would try to tell me that she was Russian and like English wasn't her first language. And, you know, I think she was trying to also portray that, but Mm. not, not a strong effort to do that. That's, that's once again, from the beginning of our conversation, those psychopathic tendencies, multiple personalities, just, oh man, this person. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm glad that you're doing a lot to kind of spread light on this. And I'm glad that you allowed me to talk to you about this. Um, Thank you. I would love to do another one in the, in the near future. And, and obviously when you get more information out there and, and uh, yes. can talk about some things, cause I know, I know okay. there's other details that yes. I, I know you want to get out, but I, I think we did mm-hmm. a good job of not talking about who these people are. Yes. Definitely don't want to back you in a corner. Um, yeah. I don't want to put people in danger too. That's one of right. my biggest right. That's a great thoughts point. That if if that starts starts if it starts coming out that she just may go and finish a few people off. Right. That's a great point. That's and and that's that's selfless of you because I mean, I, me I would want that person to be outed immediately, but that's you know you're looking at a big picture and long term because if mm-hmm. you did that now, you might not. I think doing podcasts and getting it out there and building up steam and, and, and really getting the public to talk about this. Cause let's say, you know, let's face it nowadays, public opinion is f- fairly important. And if you can get a lot of people on, on your side and, you know, not saying all of this stuff that we talked about is factually true and it happened, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of circumstantial evidence here that, that is just, you have to question. And it, as an investigator, mm-hmm. they should be ashamed of themselves for not doing at the very least, their job. 
So yes. I'm sorry for that. I, I mean, I'm not, I just, I feel bad because it's like, let's talk about justice. It's I tragic. Mean, it's yes. so tragic in every way. Mm-hmm. It's he, this, this young man dies. No one seems to care enough besides the mother to actually do a proper investigation and keep track of these things. And, you know, you're, they're getting rid of evidence and they don't want to cooperate with you. It's just the opposite of what you would expect from help from people in law mm-hmm. enforcement. And it's a shame. Yeah, I, I definitely have a jaded view oh, of, how could I'm you not, not saying every, everyone is bad no. and I'm not saying everyone at this police department is bad, but I also see when there's one bad apple that it can make the other, the others just be complicit to go along with the cover up because that's easier. Oh, it, it's, and they're looking after them, each other too. It's, you know, if one person does something, that's just a bad one bad apple can make the entire place look mm-hmm. terrible. And it's it, hopefully there's somebody in that department or there's someone outside, whether it's federal or someone that you know that you can get a hold of that can come in there and really do what needs to happen and and properly, mm-hmm. you know, with everything you've gathered, with everything that's still there, hopefully you can come up with something um, to get some type of justice. I mean, it's just I've I've never seen it this bad before. From everything that I've people I've interviewed and talked to and watched on TV, this is just complete misstep in every way. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I just can't believe it. And my my friend, the private investigator, he had a good point, and he said there won't be a homicide if you don't look for one, and that is really what has happened here. Like, I mean, not so much the the first investigator, but um, or first detective, mm-hmm. he was looking at it as a homicide, but he was taken off the case. Right. And I just go back to how many other cases have been treated this way. Right. Right. It's so much easier, honestly, more than likely as an investigator to just brush it under the table. Oh, it's this person. He was X, Y, and Z. And this is how, what happened. Then it is to actually spend time and energy and resources you know, from mm-hmm. the police department to go and look what really could have happened and, you know, uh, you know, exercise everything in their ability that they're capable, that they're capable of and, and spend, you know, no, no stone unturned. Mm-hmm. I just can't believe the, the botchery of, of them and the lack of, of them doing anything to mm-hmm. get you any type of answer. The fact that you don't know really anything, mm-hmm. you know, you really don't know anything except for what you've discovered yourself. Yeah which is fucking crazy, man. That's just like, and then to, when I go back and I think of all the ways that they would gaslight me, one of the things that was put in a local newspaper was that, um, now just going back to the bathroom real quick, the bathroom mirror was shattered. All of the hardware, the metal hardware, the towel bar, the toilet paper holder, the shower rod, everything was torn off. The lids of the toilet were ripped off. The heavy porcelain tank was broken half. Blood on all of the walls. Um, the place ransacked. The criminal investigation supervisor told the newspaper there were no signs of um, what did he say? Um, no signs of a struggle. Did you not see the photos? <laughs> He said there were no signs of, of an obvious struggle. 
Oh my God. These people are brainwashed. Well, yeah. Like I just, the article is very bad. Another thing that they said, so Brandon, Brandon had low testosterone and he was on prescription testosterone. Mm -hmm. So there were his medications. It was, um, it was an injectable and it was actually not even testosterone. It was like a, which I had to learn all about this because right. I didn't know all of this stuff. Um, you know, because I was going back to, you know, cause I came up in a different time and going back to in the eighties, they would have men would take, um, testosterone and have that, uh, what they called void rage. So oh, yeah. I had to yes. look, you know, I had to go through process of elimination. I have to call his doctor. I get a letter from his doctor. He said, no, he was a good patient. They have to stay within a, a level. If they're not in that level, they have to do the blood test. And if they're not in that level, the prescription won't be filled. So he did his blood test. He kept that in check. And the doctor told me the roid rage from the eighties was actually where, um, men were getting a hold of like, um, animal testosterone and taking that on the black market type right. thing. So it was so way it was more intense, something completely mm -hmm. different, but it was something I had to learn about. And like I said, process of elimination, um, but there were syringes, there was his medication and the police asked me, um, was he on any prescription medication? And I mm -hmm. said, testosterone is the only thing I know of when it was actually HCG, um, they put in the hospital note and then from there to the newspaper and on the autopsy that he was abusing steroids. What? Yes. But yet you have the proof of like, they would have, he would he have was never... on a prescription. I have the letter right. from the doctor Yeah. and per federal law, when they make mistakes like this, it has to be corrected. So I will be going back and asking that everything they either can amend the record or they have to attach the corrections so i'm right. going to be asking for everything that they've said to be corrected. recounted and, and again yeah, they have to yeah and and i do know that poison can cause the psychosis but going back to that february it didn't see there was no delusion or hallucination from you know what i've read so to me even that's kind of a thin um a thin explanation because they right. were trying to say that that was a drug psychosis. Um, right. So, well, it, you know, even, even if you, that as well, if the poison caused psychosis and he did go crazy and do all these things mm -hmm. to himself, where'd the poison come from? Yeah. So like, regardless of the result mm -hmm. or how it happened, it leads back mm -hmm. to someone and not yes. him. Yeah. If that makes sense. And I, think they're going to find that when they really go and look for an alibi every time that he was sick, that she doesn't have one and hmm. that she was there. Like there with him, mm -hmm. like around the time. And then, like you said, she would disappear. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, yeah, I would disappear if I know, or I think someone's going to, you know, die from my efforts. I'm going to distance mm -hmm. myself and then, oh, he didn't die. Let me keep coming back. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And like I said, she self-admits that when Dee Dee died, I mean, when you, she was found on the 18th, but she was in rigor mortis. So it had to happen Days. sometime mm -hmm. between the 17th and 18th. Right. Um, 
from the time that someone last talked to her, um, she was in town. That is crazy. Well, hopefully, like I said before, somebody comes in with the right set of skills and the mindset and the the drive to actually get some answers because this is just this is crazy. And hopefully I can, you know, promote this and I'm going to put this out. Like I said, I'm going to put it, it all over Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. I'm going to post because we've now been in two hours almost. So I think we're going to, yeah, thank we, you. Got, we have a lot of content we can yes. uh, t- uh, base off of, but, but Sarah, Sarah Lee, thank you so much for, for coming thank on. You. I really appreciate it. Thank Any, you. Can you tell me where people can find you and, and anything like that, please? Yes. Uh, there's a lot of evidence, photos, um, audio, things like that on the Facebook page, Brandon's Voice. And I've done TikToks trying to tell his story, which I need to get back kind of left off because we started investigating more. Um, but I hope to get back and start telling more on the TikTok. And there's also um, where I share the TikToks on Facebook yep, as well on another page. So there's like three and there's several podcasts now, uh, the catch my killer, true crime mamas, generation Y. And now thank you so much for spending this time with me. And also, um, my friend, um, Mizzy, uh, she has done very in-depth talking about his case and those are out there too. So she's done a lot of work as well. Aren't you on the discovery too soon next year? Yes. They, um, the ID channel still a mystery did interview our family. So that should be for the upcoming season. Awesome. And I'm going to have links mm-hmm. to all of that stuff in the description below. Thank so you. that way people can find it. Um, but thank you again so much for coming on. I thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. Thank and you. that's another episode of the E4 explosive podcast. And we'll see you next time.